And welcome to the broadcast of Better Together, Democrats and Republicans Who Love America. All right, some updates here. Start off on a positive note, high-speed rail to San Jose passes another hurdle. Cron 4, no, Cron San Francisco, Bay City News. High-speed rail to San Jose, this was yesterday, passes another hurdle. With the recent vote, high-speed rail moves one step closer to rolling down the tracks in the Bay Area. When completed, passengers will be able to travel by train from San Francisco to L.A. in under three hours. On August 13th, the California High-Speed Rail Authority Board voted unanimously to approve the environmental impact report along the 49-mile stretch from San Francisco to San Jose. Board members Nancy Miller was absent. The section of this project estimated cost more than $5.3 billion. Anthony Lopez, spokesperson for the California High-Speed Rail Authority, said the next steps are finalizing the design and pre-construction. Cost estimates for Phase 1 between San Francisco and Anaheim range from $76.6 billion to $113 billion. Lopez says the board's recent action extends environmental clearance to more than 420 miles. The environmental reports for the final two Southern California sections are planned for 2023-2024. Multiple off-road ATVs, motorcycles, perform sideshow in a bay road. Oh, that's an ad. Sorry. They insert these in here. Rod Deuteron, chair emeritus of the California High-Speed Rail Authority Board, said prior to the pandemic, almost 200,000 people commuted each day from the Central Valley to the Bay Area, driving two to three and a half hours each way. You arrive exhausted. You had to leave before the kids got up. He told San Jose Spotlight. When you get home, it's after the kids' little league game, and maybe you get their time to tuck them in. That's not a fit lifestyle. One, once complete high-speed rail will connect San Jose to Fresno in one hour, a huge time saver for people who chose to move out of the area will search affordable housing, Jared Duran said. Trains traveling at 200 miles an hour will significantly shorten travel times for commuters in the Central Valley. The most serious impediment for high-tech and employment in our area is the lack of housing, Duran said. It will give Silicon Valley a new lease on life because we gain access to affordable homes in the Central Valley. Well, I'm sure the prices are going to go up. So it's just like, we don't want to just assume that the rail is going to keep the prices in the Central Valley low. I don't think that would necessarily be, you know, an assumption that should be there. I think that will change a lot of things. The high-speed rail line will feed into San Jose through Ditteron Station, which is set to become a major transit hub with BART's expansion from the north. To connect the Central Valley to Gilroy, then to San Jose, the project will require tunneling through Pacheco Pass years in the making. The rail authority was created by state legislator and Governor Pete Wilson in 1986. In November 2008, voters approved the $9.95 billion bond measure toward the construction of a high-speed train with phase one from San Francisco to L.A. Anaheim. In 2015, the project broke ground in Central Valley. As cost overruns and delays extended the timeline, rail line is anticipated to link Bakersfield to Merced by 2030 and Bay Area by 2033. Completing the route from L.A. to San Francisco could cost $105 billion, according to state estimate. State Assembly Member Ash Kara said high-speed rail would be the critical connection from Central Valley, both the Bay Area and L.A. The project will also be a job generator and provide environmental benefits with less cars on the road, he said. I look forward to San Jose Duran Station being a huge essential point for high-speed rail to connect through transit through Bay Area and ultimately to connect us to the rest of the state, he told the San Jose Spotlight. Okay.
Um, Brian Schmidt, Policy and Advocacy Director of Green Foothills, says it's concerning how high-speed rail will impact the migration of bobcats, mountain lions, elk, and Coyote Valley and Pacheco Pass. Green Foothills wants to see this mitigated with wildlife-friendly crossings. Most of those areas are very important migration corridors, he said. Coyote Valley is one of the two corridors, cord- corridors connecting the relatively isolated Santa Cruz mountain range to the rest of the natural habitats in the, in the state. With an eye to environment, high-speed rail will share electrified Caltrain tracks. Overhead wiring is already in place at Didron Station with $800 million of its funding paid through the high-speed rail budget, Didron said. Boris Lipkin, California High-Speed Rail Authority, Northern California Regional Director, said, if federal, state, and regional funding was in place, high-speed rail could be completed between San Francisco and Los Angeles in just over 10 years. But getting the funding is a challenge. Lipkin said in the era of climate change, it's essential that people use trains powered by renewable energy rather than cars and planes. Turning into reality, I want to just point out here, cars and planes are very low on the list of impactful carbon footprints. Just want to say that. It's not nice to breathe the smog, but it's not the most impactful thing. The most impactful thing is heating and cooling in everyday homes, where this energy is sourced, and uh, the meat and dairy industry. Those two are the most impactful things. And actually, those two things are actually within most people's um, ability to change quickly without any politician's involvement whatsoever. But if they can get you thinking it's all about electric cars, <laughs> they can get you thinking it's all about high-speed rail, and that's going to save everything and flying, you know, coach or something. I'm just saying that's my party that's trying to do that. And they know better. I'm just exposing. It's a problem. Um, you know, I'm not against the high-speed rail, but let's not market it as the answer of saving everything. It's way down the list. Okay. Turning that into the reality is a huge undertaking, he said. The scale of this thing is massive, but the benefits are also massive. Only thing is, like, how do you stop a 200-mile-an-hour train? We see the train wrecks on Caltrain. I'm just wondering, like, is there magical parachutes that fly out of the back? Or, you know, what is it that, I mean, imagine a train crashing at 200 miles an hour. I don't even know how fast Amtrak goes. Um, I just want to know, you know, a little bit more about the safety issues, perhaps. Okay. Let's see. The electric car. Let's talk about the electric car. Slash gear. The electric car charging problem is worse than you realized by Dave McQuillan yesterday. Electric vehicles are becoming more and more mainstream every day. The success of Tesla has made Elon Musk the world's most richest man while rivaling EV companies like Lucid have the backing of Saudi Arabian royal family. Traditional car companies are shifting their focus to electric cars too. Ford is offering electronic electric versions of some of its most popular vehicles, even gas-guzzling muscle cars like iconic Mustang and workhorses like the F1 
150 have electric alternatives. And then there's Dodge, which is retiring its two muscle cars lines, the Charger and the Challenger, in 2024. Dodge's gas-powered muscle is set to be replaced by at least one EV. They've gone so far as to unveil a concept car, which was met with a mixed response. The manufacturers are back in the electric concept. A government is stepping up tax incentives, and customers are demanding new EVs. Sales of electric vehicles increased by almost 200%. I just want to pause, too, and remember remember that PG&E is a monopoly. <laughs> okay? I don't know that solar power is charging your electric car. Probably not wind, either. So do you not see that if you're going to become so dependent on an electric car and the electricity that provides to that car is, is owned by a monopoly... This spells disaster on many levels. <laughs> One of the many reasons I don't like electric cars. Okay, between quarter two of 2020 and its same financial period in 2021, the manufacturing shift toward EVs, production of gas-powered cars, ending gas tax incentives and infrastructure projects means the number of electric vehicles in the U.S. is only going to increase. But not everyone's happy with the electric vehicle purchase. There have been some significant issues in an area that's been a long concern for EV skeptics. Although charging has improved over the last few years, the top of the line EVs can now get hundreds of miles of range in minutes. Customers are noting several significant issues with the char- car- car's charging systems. Despite advances in charging, battery life, overall EV efficiency, charging is still one of the biggest problems area vehicles have. Consumer research firm J.D. Power recently surveyed over 11,500 EV and plug-in hybrid vehicle owners and discovered those areas with a high number of EV owners found charging facilities to be inadequate plagued with non-functioning stations. This is the second year the organization has surveyed EV owners, and it claims that satisfaction levels have dropped in the 12 months between the studies. Brent Gruber, executive director of Global Automotive at J.D. Power, claims public charging stations aren't keeping up with the growing number of EV drivers, according to Gruber. Not only is the availability of public charging still an obstacle, but EV owners continue to be faced with charging station equipment that's inoperable. Gruber went on to call for more stations in areas with gaps and along heavily traveled routes. He also demanded new stations be reliable. Conversely, customer satisfaction was highest in states with low rate of EV ownership, like those in the Midwest. The majority of owners surveyed said they were also relatively satisfied with the current charging process. However, those that were dissatisfied mostly seemed to have the same set of issues. The study showed that 20% of the surveyed end up not charging their vehicle during a visit to a public charging station. Most of those who were left without charging did so malfunctioning equipment or the station being out of service. Owners tended to be happiest with Tesla Level 2 and Tesla Supercharger stations. Volta came second and ChargePoint became third in the Level 2 station rankings. As bad as the problem is, it may only be short term. In, over, in, over, in total, over 50,000 electric vehicle charging stations are operating in the U.S. This is around one-third of the number of gas stations and operations in the country. But figures are expected to change over the next few years. There are a number of plans in motion to expand the access to electric car charging facilities nationwide. Tesla will soon allow owners of any electric vehicle to use its network of supercharging stations within the U.S. Elon Musk company has already trialed similar schemes in Europe, some of them which saw drivers crossing national borders to use charging facilities. According to Tesla, in around five minutes, the superchargers can provide enough juice to send one of his electric cars 75 miles. The charging system could also offer up to 1,000 miles of range in under an hour, though no electric car in the market has a battery capacity to test that claim. The best high-end commercially available electric car, uh, electric vehicle currently max out at around 500 miles of range. 
Tesla isn't the only company looking to improve EV charging situation in the U.S. Electrify America, which already has over 750 charging stations dotted across the country, plans at another 10,000 ultra-fast chargers at 1,800 stations. Other large companies working for EV infrastructure projects include Siemens, Volkswagen, and ChargePoint. General Motors is also partnering with EVgo and truck stop chain Pilot in an attempt to add 2,000 electric additional charging stations. The stalls, stall, rather stalls, stalls will provide over 100 miles of range in under 20 minutes. GM and EV Go are also teaming to bring over 3,000 fast chargers to cities. None of this makes me want to go out and get an electric car. Not a thing. Mm-mm. Okay, got some local, got some states, so many things, trying to figure out what to do next. That was not supposed to be here, that was supposed to be in the other. Okay, so we're going to refile that one. Okay. Oh, there's several here. I guess we'll jump over to the Trump stuff. Okay. ABC News. Trump files motion to stop further review of items seized at Mar-a-Lago raid. Former President Donald Trump filed a motion in federal court on Florida on Monday seeking appointment of a special master to review materials seized by the Justice Department from his Mar-a-Lago state in a raid earlier this month. The motion from Trump seeks an injunction that would bar the government from any further review of seized materials until the appointment of a special master and also requests a more detailed receipt from the government of items that were seized. The motion further requests an order from the judge to have the Justice Department return any item seized that was not within the scope of the search warrant. In a statement released after the filing, Judge Justice Department spokesperson Anthony Coley says the August 8th search warrant of Mar-a-Lago was authorized by a federal court upon the required finding of probable cause. The department is aware of the evening's motion. This evening's motion, the U.S. will file its response in court. Sources have told ABC News the search of Trump's Palm Beach home two weeks ago was connected to a probe into whether Trump improperly took classified documents and other records to Florida after leaving the White House. In January, National Archives officially retrieved 15 boxes of records that had been improperly taken to Mar-a-Lago, where Trump left the White House last year. Then two months ago, federal agents visited Mar-a-Lago to retrieve additional materials that they believe Trump had failed to turn over. Shortly after that visit, an attorney for Trump signed a statement saying that all classified documents at Mar-a-Lago had been turned over to federal investigators. Sources familiar with the matter told ABC News, but authorities believe Trump continued to possess classified documents leading to August 8th raid. Yeah, so they didn't just take his word for it, or the lawyer's word for it. Quitter Queer Tea magazine yesterday. Jared Kushner is doing serious damage control after speculation that he's the Mar-a-Lago mole. 
Last week it was Melania, apparently. Now it's Jared. Okay. Jared Kushner appears to be doing everything he can to dispel rumors that he's the Mar-a-Lago mole who ratted out Donald Trump to the FBI, resulting in the agency's search the ex-president's Palm Beach, Florida resort this month. In appearance on Fox News over the weekend, Kushner told anchor Mark Levin that the raid or Mark Levine, that raid, which he called an unfortunate turn of events, was yet another example of Trump's enemies persecuting him. President Trump is a fighter, Kushner, who book new book, Greek Breaking History, a White House memoir, which is being panned by critics, hit bookstore shelves tomorrow. He said he's always been a fighter. In the way that he drives his enemies so crazy, they're always over to pursue him and make mistakes and try to get him. That's basically what happened here. Multiple sources close to Trump told The Guardian last week that after the FBI searched his home, aides began frantically speculating about who among them was in cahoots with the agency. The quickly determined the person had to be close, very close to ex-president. Given what agents had already knew, they showed up at the front door, including where his safe was located, and to look for a specific leather-bound box. Shortly after the raid... Mary Trump publicly speculated that Kushner was confidential informant in an appearance on the podcast, The Dean Obadella Show. We need to look at very hard at why Jared got $2 billion, she said, referring to an investment into Kushner's private equity firm from a fund belonging to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. We need to look very hard at why he's been so quiet for so many months now. She continued, and we need to think about who could also be implicated in this that would need to be as big a play as turning Donald in in order to get out of trouble or at least to mitigate the trouble they're in. It sounds like somebody in Jared's position. I'm not saying it's Jared, but it could be. Speaking to Levine, Jared also tried to dispel reports at this tension between himself and the father-in-law, claiming they just played golf together a few days ago before going to say the leakers are making up fabulous claims about his family. Kushner also took to Twitter to suck up the father-in-law tweeting, Working for the real Donald Trump was an honor of a lifetime, along with the photo of the two together on an airplane. There are like tons of Twitter... Uh, posts calling them mostly traitors well we don't know if it's Jared I still think it's Trump himself but let's see what the judge wanted to say alternate yesterday a judge appears poised to keep much of Mar-a-Lago affidavit sealed to protect Trump others have said to protect the FBI agents David Badash, apparently in whom Trump has already revealed the identities of said FBI agents. Okay, federal magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt in his published 13-page written order released Monday said that one of the reasons not to unseal the affidavit used to justify the search warrant for Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residences and doing so might hamper efforts to use to protect the former president. Judge Reinhardt's order offers several reasons for and against unsealing the affidavit. Political senior legal affairs reporter Kyle Cheney notes, Trump's own personal safety is one of the reasons Reinhardt offers for not unsealing the affidavit. The affidavit discusses physical aspects of the premises. The judge writes, referring to Mar-a-Lago, which is location protected by the U.S. Secret Service. Disclosure of those details could affect Secret Service's ability to carry out its protection function. The factor weighs in favor of sealing. Cheney also points to the section of the order that discusses whether or not Trump had or still has classified documents related to nuclear secrets. Unsealing the affidavit would expose the source and methods in the Department of Justice used to gather those facts. 
In any event, these arguments ignored the contents of the affidavit identity, not just the facts known to the government, but the sources and methods, the witnesses and the investigative techniques used to gather the facts. That information is not known to the public. For the reasons discussed above, the government has compelling reason not to publicize that information at this time. I think they will later. CBS News Radio White House correspondent Steve Partney says in the order, Reinhardt itemized recent incidents of intimidation harassment and says it's likely that even witnesses who are not expressly named in the affidavit would be quickly and broadly identified over social media, which could lead them to being harassed. Courtney adds, but Reinhardt says prosecutors have met their burden of showing good cause to not have full contents unsealed. Reinhardt also warns presumably Trump allies not to not try to destroy the credibility of the process used to obtain a search warrant or the justice system. I do not give much weight to the remaining factors relevant to whether the common law of right access requires unsealing of the affidavit, he writes, which Cheney points to. Allowing access to the unredacted affidavit would not impair court functions. Having carefully reviewed the affidavit before signing the warrant, I was and am satisfied that the facts sworn in by the affidavit are reliable. So releasing the affidavit to the public would not cause false information to be disseminated. There's no indication that the interveners seek the records for any illegitimate purposes. MSNBC's reporting states the judge may decide not to not release any of the affidavit. Okay, then this one says judge finally decides... Whether the Mar-a-Lago raid affidavit will be made public. Haley Von Horn, The List, yesterday. Former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort home was recently raided by FBI. According to CNN, search warrant issued for the raid on Trump's Palm Beach, Florida home was for documents, some of which are classified. The FBI believed the former president took illegal illegally after his exit from the White House. Trump issued a statement that read, My beautiful home, Mar-a-Lago, in Palm Beach, Florida. It's currently under siege, raided, and occupied by a large group of FBI agents. He added, FBI also searched his safe during the raid. The former president quickly claimed that there was political motivation behind the raid. However, Liz Cheney, the representative leading the January 6th insurrection, has found there's no evidence of such. There have been many claims made by Trump and his team regarding the reason behind the root cause of the raid. Now a judge has ruled that the information behind the search will be made public. According to the New York Times, there's been a large amount of misinformation spread about the FBI's raid of the former Donald Trump Mar-a-Lago home. Trump himself has been one of the main sources of false claims, stating that President Joe Biden was at the root of the search. However, public will get the real details behind the raid after a judge decided to reject the idea to keep Trump's affidavit private <clears throat> via the New York Post. U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt found that there's no reason for the government to keep the entire affidavit private. Not everyone involved is on board with releasing information to the public. The Justice Department's top counterintelligence official, Jay Bratt, said this is a volatile situation with respect to the surge across the political spectrum. But on one side in particular, he added, the government is very concerned about the safety of witnesses in these cases and the impact of all the intention on these witnesses and other witnesses. Major news networks, including CNN, had fought for the affidavit to be made public. Trump's legal team has not made a formal comment on whether or not they approve of the public release of the affidavit. Well, it sounds like that judge flip-flopped. A little bit. Okay. What's going on with the FBI? Jim Jordan says 
more FBI whistleblowers coming forward every other week. Washington Examiner, Daniel Chatain. Yesterday, a growing number of FBI whistleblowers are coming forward to the Republican investigators in Congress, Rep- Representative Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, disclosed on Monday. The congressman with the ranking member of House Judiciary Committee said in an interview that there are now over 14 agents who have raised concerns with GOP lawyers in the panel over matters, including controversy surrounding school board's memo, January 6th, and pressure to label cases domestic violence extremism. It overshadowed it. It overall shows the political nature, unfortunately, of now that we have at the Justice Department, Jordan said at Real America's Voice. Jordan made waves a little more than a week ago when he said the number of whistleblowers in the FBI was up to 14, above the six he mentioned a couple months prior. The uptip came after the FBI raid at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. On the Senate side, Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, has disclosed his team received whistleblower disclosures, including those related to federal investigation into Hunter Biden. For his part, Attorney General Merrick Garland has denied GOP claims of anti-conservative politicization at the DOJ, which is the parent agency of the FBI. Still, Jordan insists evidence to the contrary is piling up. I anticipate more coming forward, Congressman said of whistleblowers. I've never seen anything like this. It seems like every other week we're hearing from somebody. Eight secrets the FBI doesn't want you to know. I did a previous article on 14 secrets. Okay, best life. Eight secrets the uh, FBI doesn't want you to know. Zachary Mack yesterday. Because there's more to add to the bile. When it comes to law enforcement in the U.S., there's no higher authority than the FBI. It's after, it's after founding a small group of investigators in 1908. The agency got its official name in 35 and has grown to employ over 35,000 people today. But while it's a common knowledge that the Bureau keeps an eye on everything from terrorism to counterespionage to white-collar crime and cybercrime on a national level, there's still plenty public doesn't know about the top law enforcement agencies' inner workings in history. Read on for some of the secrets the FBI has managed to keep under wraps. The agency has a dedicated team of special agents for discreetly gathering information. As the nation's top investigative body, the FBI has developed plenty of tactics to make their jobs easier. According to experts, this includes coming up with convincing ways to buy themselves in enough time to gather evidence. To plant buffing devices and conduct electronic surveillance, the FBI uses tactical operations, super-secret unit of FBI break-in artists who conduct court-authorized burglaries in home, offices and embassies to plant hidden microphones and video cameras and snoop into computers. Ron Kessier, author of The Secrets of FBI, tells Best Life. Besides terrorists, the targets may be mafia figures, corrupt members of the Congress, spies or intelligence officers of Russia and China. When conducting covert entries, TAC ops may stage fake traffic accidents, traffic stops, or utility breakdowns to waylay occupants and security personnel, Kessler says. To conceal agents as they defect locks and alarm systems, it creates false fronts to houses and fake businesses to hide agents. If caught breaking in, TAC ops agents are in danger of being shot by occupants who think they are burglars. There are physical requirements for the job. While FBI is an investigative body and not a police force, it's required for special agents to be in good physical shape for the sake of their job. In fact, it's necessary to pass a fitness test during their annual performance reviews that include being able to do a certain amount of sit-ups and push-ups and run 300 meters in 1.5 under a specific time. Requirements are different for each 
age group and gender, but the youngest male agents between age of 23 and 29 complete 38 sit-ups, 29 push-ups, keep their 300-meter dash under a minute, and complete their 1.5-mile run in less than 12 and a half minutes, according to New York Times. The agency has ways to safely and humanely deal with guard animals. It may be one of the things that get the focus of investigation out of their house for the afternoon, but it's another issue entirely dealing with their pets or guard dogs. However, FBI has also devised clever ways to minimize the risk to keep its agents and animals safe. For attack ops, agents break into homes, offices, and embassies to plant begging devices, or the great threat is dogs, Kessler said. They could be guard dogs or household pets, all spell trouble. In many cases, it can be easy as winning the pups over with treats. FBI agents may befriend dogs over a period of week, feeding them, Kessler explains. During a job... They may place in soundproof crates outfitted with food and water, or they may tranquilize them with sedative dart from a tranquilizer gun. When the job is finished, they will give them a shot to wake them. The dosages are determined beforehand by a veterinarian or contract. Kessler says agents would provide a picture and description of the dog in question using their size and age to determine how dog can safely be sedated. During an operation, agents will carry a kit with everything they need to treat an animal and avoiding harm at them at all costs. The FBI has special jurisdiction over kidnapping cases. FBI goes to great lengths to stay within the purview and avoid overstepping its bounds as the state and local law enforcement handle crimes and investigations. However, the agency will quickly step in during a suspected kidnapping. According to the Bureau, any victim that's not located or released within 24 hours of being reported missing is presumed to have been transported over state lines, and the agency opens up an investigation. The agency has plenty of resources to help them blend in. The idea of special agents donning elaborate costumes to carry out investigation may seem like something of a cliched spy movie, but according to experts, the FBI has perfected its disguise department to help with their jobs. A full wardrobe of about 50 assorted uniforms hangs on the racks of the tax op support center, Kelsler said, best life. A graphics expert designs custom-made uniforms, fake ID, badges, and wraps with fake signs for trucks. Agents will pose as elevator inspectors, firefighters, utility workers. Alternatively, they could pose as tourists wearing short and taking snapshots. They could be homeless people wearing tattered clothes. There is one constant across all disguises, however. Agents select oversized clothes where they can hide tools and breaking in, Hessler says. <laughs> Take that simply safe. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh... All these like home security camera commercials are coming through my mind now. Safeguard prepare, safeguard protects, or whatever it is. Okay, not against the FBI invading your home though. The FBI has a way of getting you out of your house where they want to investigate. Everyone gets excited over the prospect of winning a special prize, apparently even potential criminals. The FBI has been known to use this enthusiasm to help facilitate their investigations. We give people opportunities to travel and do exotic things. FBI told Kassler, you won the lottery. You won a trip to free dinner. Congratulations. We picked your business card out of a bucket. That wasn't luck. That was us trying to present an opportunity. According to Kessler, once they've convinced a target to leave their home, it made it easier for them to get inside and reinstall and install listening devices. 
sorry. They may have already your fingerprints on file, even if you've never been arrested. Many assume that law enforcement only collects your fingerprints after you've been brought in for questioning or arrested for a crime. However, anyone who's ever submitted them as part of a job application, licensing process, or the type of background check is most likely on file in the agency's integrated automated fingerprint identification system, Insider reports. The massive database in Clarksburg, West Virginia, includes more than 100 million entries and can turn around search results in 12 to 15 minutes. Number nine, the agency has been known to use different tactics for misdirection during an on-site investigation. Even if you've convinced them to leave home, it can be hard to conduct a covert operation if your target is in a busy area. But the agency has devised its own tactics for misdirection during its on-site investigations. To cover up noises or divert attention, the FBI may drive garbage trucks through the streets and bang on the garbage cans around. They may start up a wood chipper or use a jackhammer to attack a piece of concrete that's been delivered to the location and dumped on the street. Kessler explains. They may use high-pressure water jets to clean the sidewalk and send passengers scurrying. Uh, passers-by, passers-by scurrying. Agents may also enlist local police to park their cruisers with lights flashing nearby. I know we're all waiting for the next reboot of Criminal Minds. I'm drooling at it. <laughs> What's going on with Hodge? Okay. <laughs> All of those things are true. Ooh. So that can freak you out, or perhaps you've had a similar experience where you've experienced something similar to this. I don't think it's just the FBI. Um, I think criminals also have exactly the same tools as FBI have. Um, it's just a matters of where you put your trust, right? Is it happy thing that... There are master keys to break into people's homes, to plant whatever. I mean, it depends, right? They have nothing to hide, but even so. Do I think they planted anything at Mar-a-Lago? No, I don't. So why don't they want the cameras rolling when they were searching through everything? I think they were afraid of finding what they were searching for and having it being videoed and watched way further than Trump Tower, if you get my meaning. Um, yeah. How much? Oh, we got 34 minutes. I got a while. Okay. Let's see. Is there any more FBI stuff? I told you that one. Russia, Russia, Russia. Russia sanctions. I saw that story flying around again about how Putin's on death's doorstep again. I don't know that I'd buy it the second time. Yeah, we heard that before. <laughs> okay. I don't quite buy that he's ill. Uh, until, like, I see it. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me once, shame on me. Okay. Wall Street Journal. Ian Talley. U.S. steps up enforcement of its long list of Russia sanctions. The U.S. has imposed a powerful sanctions against Russia's economy to punish it for the invasion of Ukraine. Now U.S. officials are pushing to ensure they are effective, closing loopholes, lobbying other nations for support, cracking down on people abetting Russia's evasion. Administra- or like China, maybe. 
Uh, administration officials say the goal of the second phase is to cut off what avenues remain and the provide revenue and imports for President Vladimir Putin's need to prosecute the war, even as Europe continues to purchase significant volumes of oil and gas from Russia. That means targeting foreign banks and cryptocurrency platforms that help Russia maintain access to international currencies, taking over bank accounts, corporate assets of blacklisted oligarchs, and penalizing foreign companies caught in exporting controlled goods to the country. It also means trying to persuade countries like China and India, which haven't joined the Western economy pressure campaign, to tamp down money and exports still flowing into Russia. Well, I don't think President Xi Jinping's going to listen to your scolding and your firm talk. I think we have to go to war with that one. Uh, Washington's goal is to empower the Ukrainians to defend themselves, to degrade Russia's ability to fight the war, and project power into the future, Deputy U.S. Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo said last month at Aspen Security Forum, Conference on National Security and Foreign Policy Issues. In late February and March, the U.S. and its allies had launched a wide-ranging sanctions campaign against Russia, hitting Moscow's emergency cash reserves, blacklisting its biggest financial and corporate institutions. They also imposed restrictions on critical exports and took aim at the assets of Russian oligarchs, critical source of Mr. Putin. But... Russia continues to sell huge volumes of oil and natural gas, which remained largely unsanctioned, effectively funding its war machine and economy with cash from Western countries dependent on Russian energy exports. Other data suggests that through the countries are complying with sanctions, Russia maintains significant trade with other states. All that has enabled Moscow to continue prosecuting uh, the war and keep its economy afloat despite sanctions campaign, analysts said. In some view, stepped-up enforcement is worthy, but with limited deterrent effect. None of this has, nor will, affect Putin's decision to keep up the war in Ukraine, said Kurt Volker, a former U.S. ambassador to both Ukraine and North Atlantic Treaty Organization, now now fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, a nonpartisan think tank in Washington. U.S. officials say they never expected this strategy of economic warfare to achieve its goals overnight, but the impact of sanctions will gradually mount to ensure that the U.S. is uncovering the network of people and businesses helping Russia sidestep the sanctions, officials said. Intelligence officers at the Treasury Department Office of Foreign Assets Control and Commerce Department Bureau of Industry and Security are pursuing companies that continue to supply Russia with financial services and goods, such as semiconductors, weapons that are prohibited by new export controls. Earlier this month, the Treasury Department sanctioned a Russian financial institution called JSC Promise Industrial Infrastructure Technologies, accusing it of being a front for a previously sanctioned Russian direct investment fund. Those who facilitate U.S. sanctions of these evasion will themselves be sanctioned, the Treasury Department said at the time. The same day, the Commerce Department prohibited U.S. companies from conducting business related to 25 airplanes owned by Russia's Aeroflot and Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich, including fueling, maintaining, servicing them, or providing them with spare parts. Where we identify companies that attempt to backfill our restrictions, we will take swift action, said Alan Estevez, the Commerce Department's Undersecretary for Industry and Security. The U.S. Treasury Department also recently sanctioned a Hong Kong-registered company called EMC Satellite Limited, which is said to use by a former Russian agent to procure technology for Moscow's intelligence servers. services. The Treasury and Justice Department have established task forces called the Klepto Capture and Repo for Russian elites, proxies, and oligarchs. Repo, I love it. To track down, freeze, and seize the assets of blacklisted Russian oligarchs, federal prosecutors have sought to seize a Boeing 787-8 and Gulfstream 6 
Okay, G64ER aircraft owned by Mr. Amaravoch. Amaravoch and an Airbus jet and a 300 million yacht owned by a pair of sanctioned Russian politicians. The EU and UK have sanctioned Mr. Amaravoch can't say his name, and U.S. hasn't, but found the planes were subject to forfeiture based on allegations, violations of U.S. experts controlled. The administration considers those assets potential source of funding for Ukraine's budget needs and eventual reconstruction. We're asking Congress for the authority to give them the proceeds of these ill-gotten gains, for Deputy Attorney Attorney uh, General Lisa Monaco said at the Aspen conference, several large countries such as China, India, and Iran that have long-standing trade and security ties to Russia have continued to export goods banned under the U.S. sanctions. China's government said it wouldn't abide by actions it deems illegal or that it hit companies based in China that do business with Russia. Chinese companies have been supplying computer chips and other electronic components that U.S. officials have military applications, for example. Our concern is that our our concern and our admonitions have always been the context of potential Chinese military assistance or systemic assistance to help Russia evade the impact of the U.S. international sanctions, State Department spokesman Ned Price said Wednesday. We've been very clear in our engagements with China regarding the consequences of doing so. A senior White House official traveled to New Delhi in the spring to urge India to take a more forceful stance against Russia, later warning of consequences for countries that help out circumvent sanctions. But companies in India where the government has long maintained coast diplomatic and security ties to Moscow are still supplying Russian companies with oil, natural gas, equipment banned under the U.S. export controls, according to Import Genius Trade, data reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. Three countries also have solid diplomatic and trade ties to Russia. Brazil, Israel, Uzbekistan have seen trade with Russia increase, according to trade data. Another concern for Russia is cooperation with Iran, which has long been subject to Western sanctions on the financial and energy sectors, has developed technical expertise in evading them. The U.S. says Iran has sent Russia hundreds of advanced drones, the Wall Street Journal has reported. And that just kind of petered out, didn't it? It wasn't a nice, happy ending at the bed. Yeah, well, autocrats support autocrats. Breaking news. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. And democracies support democracies. Newsflash. It's not going to change. Okay. So it can't just be tough talk and, you know, a finger shaking and you better watch out. I mean, you have to put some, you know, some fire to this. It's like what Dan Crenshaw was saying, you know, good old patches. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Dan. I'm saying it in a devoted yet somewhat jovular fashion. Um, you know, you called it out. You were like, you know, we can't just wait for China to somehow become a nice country. We can't just wait for, you know, uh, Moscow to, or Russia to somehow become a nice country. Agreed. They're not going to just, like, once they get the island, be nice. Once they get Ukraine, be nice. This was Dan Crenshaw's uh, rebuke of, well, what do we call him? Tucker Carlson, otherwise known as the moron. I mean, yeah, agreed. He was talking about Afghanistan pullout as problematic. I mean, did anyone think Afghanistan pullout was going to be flawless? I sure didn't. Did it need to happen? Yes. With a perfect wrapped and a happy bow ending? No. It just needed to end. Uh, sorry, Dan. But you were right. 
No, they're not going to just wake up one day and go, oh, thanks for giving us Taiwan. We're so much better now. <laughs> thanks for giving us Ukraine. Oh, we're going to just turn over a new leaf. They're not going to do any of that. It'll embolden them, empower them, and they'll just continue on worse. It's not that rocket science. So Democrats, get with the program. In this way, the Republicans are wiser. Anyway. <laughs> I got not too much time. Let's talk about the migrants. Actually, no. We were on a war thing, so let's talk about the Navy. The Navy decommissions... Popular mechanics. If the Navy really dis decommissions 39 ships in 2023, it'll only help China. Kyle Misakasami. Yesterday, the Navy has submitted plans to decommission nearly three dozen ships in 2023. The loss in hulls comes just as the Navy reports it's reached a high of 300 ships. One of the ships, USS St. Louis, costs $450 million and has been with the fleet for two years. The U.S. Navy plans to shed more than three dozen ships in 2023, while some ships are too old, having served for nearly four decades. Some are seemingly too young, having served for just three to five years, their projected 25-year lifespan. The service, which has pledged to increase the size of the fleet for years, will decommission a total of 39 ships next year, including 23 from the Battle Fleet roster. Among the ships are two submarines, nine littoral combat ships, five cruisers, six amphibious ships. According to U.S. Naval Institute News, this list must also include five small patrol boats, transport ships, fuel, and ammunition ships. Twenty-three ships belong to the ship battle forces. A category include warships capable of contributing to combat operations or a U.S. Navy ship that contributes directly to Navy war fighting or support missions. Ship battle forces is a critical figure of the Navy and others use as a benchmark to compare to the fleet to foreign enemies, particularly China. The number of U.S. ships in this category went from 318 in 2000 to post-Cold War low of 271 in 2015. Today, the number stands at 300. The Pentagon and Navy have repeatedly pledged to increase the size of ship battle forces each time the number of ships grows, with the data completion gets pushed back. In 2017, rather, the Navy believed it could get 355 ships by 2030. Earlier this year, the Navy said it could get 373 crewed ships and 150 robo-warships, a total of 523 ships by 2045. Although declaring shipbuilding a priority, the Pentagon and Navy have not allocated funding to support significant growth over the long term. Losing 23 ships from ship battle forces will send a number of hulls plummeting back to 2015 levels. More ships will be commissioned in 2023, but given the recent trends, the Navy will only build about one-third of the ships to make up for the planned loss. The Navy could end up taking one step forward and three steps back. How did we come to this? After 9-11, Navy struggled to remain relevant. As America and its allies fought land wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Navy's littoral combat ship and Zumalt-class destroyers were meant to provide support by, to land forces. The Navy, lacking major peer advisory, enjoyed sea superiority by default. The rise of the Chinese Navy, and to the lesser extent, the Russian Navy, challenged America's dominance at sea. At the same time, mechanical problems with the frigate-sized littoral combat ships, as well as development programs, hobbled their use. The ships were also expensive to operate, costing $70 million a year, compared to $81 million for the far more capable Arleigh Burke-class destroyer. The Navy also tried and failed to develop a replacement for the Ticonderota-class cruisers. 
Now the Navy wants to shelve its oldest of the Ticonderoga-class ships, arguing that they are worn out after more than three decades of use. The service wants to retire five Ticonderogas, the oldest commissioned in 1985, the youngest in 1992. The Navy even wants to retire USS Vicksburg on the cusp of finishing a $200 million upgrade, effectively throwing the money away. Together, the five ships have a total of 610 vertical launch silos capable of launching anti-air, anti-submarine land attack, and anti-ship missiles. Not even a rough idea of what they might be replaced, when they might be replaced. The Navy also wants to decommission almost all of the existing Freedom-class littoral combat ships. For each of the nine ships, cost $500 million to build for a total of $4.5 billion in ships. The oldest of the ships, USS Fort Worth, is 10 years old, while the youngest, USS St. Louis, is just over two years old. About five more littoral combat ships are in various stages of construction and fitting out. It's hard to see the Navy keep those ships for any significant amount of time. Congress and the Navy don't see eye to eye on this. Congress wants the Navy to retain all the Battle Force ships scheduled for disposal, with the exception of two LA-class nuclear-powered attack submarines. While it's easier to say the Navy should retain the ships, at a closer glance, the age of the Ticonderogas and the sheer number of flaws and problems with the littoral combat ships means the fleet is probably better off without them. The real, the real problem is, if the ships were decommissioned today, the Navy couldn't make up for the loss of the capability for another decade, even if it had the money. Will the Navy grow to fleet to match China? Those in the charge of the Department of Defense and Navy seem determined to make that happen, but also equally determined to fumble with the job. Year after year, lofty goals and ambitious timelines are floating, and then nothing ever comes to fruition. Only one Navy in the Pacific is sticking to its goals. In 2021, People's Liberation Army of Navy of China commissioned 32 ships. Hmm. Well, I don't like that. I don't think we throw away two-year-old chips. I don't think we throw away five-year-old chips. I don't think we throw away 10-year-old chips. I'm fine throwing away the 30- or 40-year-old chips if they're absolutely of no use. So is this another sabotage move by, unfortunately, my party, the Democratic Party, in this um, attempting to weaken ourselves to avoid war with China? No, I say no to that. No. And by the way, there is the British Royal Navy out there. Who happens to be our ally? Who happens to finally pledge support? Took a while. But I believe they have the the strongest navy in the world. So, okay, fine if we want to take the the old rust buckets out. But let's leave the good ones, please. And also remember, we have the Alliance Pledge of the British Royal Navy, of which also China is trying to take over by installing and taking over HSBC um, headquarters in London, if we don't remember from the article I read before, and how they want to also put Chinese communist memory oversight in London, several places actually in Europe and UK specifically. I think we are already in World War III. It's just a stealthy one. So that's my view about this. And if electric cars is going to cement a relationship dependent on China, then screw electric cars. It's not worth it. They're not that impactful anyway. Okay. Ten minutes. Ah. Oh, what's the most important thing? Let's do the illegal, illegal immigrants. Illegal immigrants avoiding border agents infiltrating U.S. introduces a new criminal element, says Garza. 
mean, we kind of know that already. I don't know if there's new news there. Uh, Texas residents fed up with border crackdown. Well, it's it's funny because in one breath, the Republicans are saying that Biden's doing absolutely nothing to secure the border. And then this story says the Texas residents are fed up with border crackdown. So is it a crackdown or is it a neglect? Um, let's see what. Come on, CC. Come on. You know, it takes a minute for me to get the captions going. Okay, so let's go back. Let's talk about Operation Lone Star in Texas now with NBC News national reporter Suzanne Gambio. Suzanne, this program has made a lot of folks in small towns there in Texas pretty angry at this point. They're seeing numbers of troopers increase in these places. They're seeing more citations of drivers. What are you hearing about these experiences with law enforcement in Texas? Well, when I went out to Brackettville, Texas, which is right on the border, about half an hour away, or not right on the border, talked to some people there. And they're basically used to use a word. We've been kind of fed up. They're tired of being seen as smugglers and suspects as people who might be carrying drugs when they've been living in this town forever and they've driven around the back roads. They feel like they're being, they don't have a problem with being stopped, you know, and showing their IDs. That's it. Being stopped and asking numerous questions about where they're going, what they're carrying. Some of them feel, you know, their rights are being violated and their civil rights are being violated and they're getting caught up in the web of enforcement on the border. Yeah, Suzanne, your article slays out disparities in the way Latino communities are being treated under these policies. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Right. Well, sure. Their border is made up mostly of Latinos. So you have vast majority of people there who are Latina. And I do want to say there were some people who did not want to go on record with their names who said that, you know, they were also Anglo who were there. I also said they were getting stopped and being asked numerous questions. But because you have a vast majority of people there in the on the border, border area, many of the stops are on Latino. There are separate studies also show that this happens statewide too. The Latinos maybe aren't cited more, but they are searched more. So we saw a large number of citations for Latinos. And this, this thing is that this is one expect, expert told us with Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund told us, look, you have a vast majority of your population is vast racial population in Texas, that is Latino. You have to figure out a way to do your mission to stop illegal immigration or illicit drugs or whatever without violating the vast majority of your population. Yeah, it's an enlightening read. I encourage folks to go to NBCNews.com right now. Suzanne Gaboa, we appreciate you. This was yesterday. That was NBC News. So what is it? Is Biden just completely neglectful of the border? Or is he sending so many different border agents that people are feeling harassed in the border towns? It doesn't sound like Biden's doing nothing. It sounds like Texas isn't building the wall with the shipping containers like Arizona is. Maybe they're too busy bussing around. Okay. I don't I haven't read an article that you know, Biden said he's like in any way discouraging the Yuma, Arizona shipping container wall. I just want to point that out. It's not like Biden has said, how dare you dismantle? He hasn't. He won't. If Texas did the same thing, he won't. So, you know, anytime Governor Abbott actually wants to solve the border problem, he can. Okay. Right, Texans? You're not silly.
1.57 million fentanyl pills and other drugs found in a trailer crossing the Mexico border. Yeah, we know about that. It's kind of exhausting to read about that. U.S. issues a kidnapping travel advisory for Mexico. Revolt U.S. issues kidnapping travel advisory to Mexico. Angel Saunders yesterday. If your summer plans include a trip to Mexico, you may want to proceed with caution. Try going with a larger group. In a report released last week, State Department warned American citizens to look out for violent crimes, such as homicide, kidnapping, carjacking, robbery, which is widespread and common in Mexico. The U.S. government has limited ability to provide emergency care services to U.S. citizens in most areas of Mexico. While areas like Campeche State and Yucatan State are perfectly fine to venture to, several places are listed do not travel to. Colombia, Guerrero, Michoacan, Sinaloa, Tamaulipas, and Zactacus due to crime and kidnapping. Other popular Mexican destinations that require Americans to exercise increased caution include Baja California Sur, Mexico City, and Quintana Roo. Those advisories provide travel tips um, for those who still wish to travel to Mexico for vacation. Visitors are urged not to travel alone, to always share their plans with a friend or relative back home. Share your GPS location, take photos of license plates when using local taxis or similar transportation such as Uber or Lyft. State Department website also suggests that visitors do not flaunt their wealth and exercise caution when using ATMs. According to The Hill last week, the State Department issued a shelter-in-place alert after a weekend of heavy gang activity in the Baja, California area. The notice warned of narcotic trafficking and human smuggling routes that added that while most of the criminal activity appeared isolated with targeted individuals or instances of innocent people becoming victims, most homicides appear to be targeted. However, criminal organization assassins and territorial disputes can result in bystanders being injured or killed, the State Department said in a release. I was surprised about the Mexico City advisory because that, I think, is largely considered a world tour destination. <sighs> I think there's a nurse that's over there right now concerned. So, yeah, maybe skip Mexico for now. Three minutes. We're going to go into the next articles tomorrow. So I don't really have much else except um, the affidavit. I think it should be released. And I think special protection for those involved. Can't those involved get special protection in some way? I think the affidavit release is critical. So or a part of it, or at least the topic of what the relevant search was, was it, you know, maybe if not the people, then at least the, the, the clear understanding of what the, what the tip off and the motivation was for the, for the FBI to um, go in the dead of night tomorrow. Lago. That would be important to know.